0: Hi everyone, David here. Just a quick note before we get started with the show that we did record this episode directly from our Zoom call, just to avoid uh, any headaches with technology and connecting microphones for the sake of convenience and expediency. You might notice a little bit of talking over each other, laughing over each other, a little bit of voice modulation. We've tried to keep it to a minimum and hope that you'll still enjoy the show. So without further ado, here is Got The Runs in conversation with Scott McLeod.
1: Hello, and welcome to a very special, very, very exciting episode of Got the Runs. Uh, I'm Chris, joined by David, as usual. How are you, David? I am so well. We should probably
0: do this at the start of every episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Uh, But also joining us, for the first time in Got the Runs history, a guest is joining us, and it's a very, very special guest. An individual who announced to us before the recording that he would be removing his shoes in order to really... uh, really sit in this recording it's true <laughs> the uh i don't feel like it's an exaggeration he might consider it so to call him a legend of uh of comic books scott mcleod is on got the runs today
2: welcome Scott. thanks chris hey david and no not a legend not, <laughs> not even close i thought you would say as much um, uh, not dead for
0: one thing <laughs> is that part of the criteria
2: yeah i believe so yeah i'm pretty sure i uh
0: i was observing that on your website you have a list of uh, gods who walk among us would you prefer us to use that terminology <laughs> <laughs>
2: no i'm definitely <laughs> not up there with uh who is it david byrne edward Tufty, uh, uh art, art, art spiegelman, spiegelman. Yeah, yeah chris ware uh oh, jim yeah. woodring definitely
1: <laughs> well not quite deity status but certainly uh an icon in the industry someone i mean it's obvious we chose to cover you as our first mini series and maybe we'll maybe we'll start there because david david described this as something that he would never want to do and i'm inclined to agree which is you listen to got the runs <laughs> <laughs> i did i did all 20 hours <laughs> we apologize for that uh, but i was i was just curious what that experience was like for you both in terms of having to deal with us and sort of revisiting your own work through uh, a very different lens than perhaps uh, your
2: own would be? Well, I actually treated it somewhat as not all that different from research I do for my books and whatnot, because I think that developing a healthy sense of self-awareness is something that's kind of a lifelong project. And I think it's very easy to become deluded one way or the other about you know where you stand and you know i'll have like any creator i'll have my swings where i'll i'll start to maybe have an unrealistically bad or good you know notion of of what i've been able to do and it's it's really helpful to get a couple of people whose i think whose sensibilities were you know you're, they're pretty solid i think you, you make some pretty sensible conclusions and so it helps me to balance things out you know to just get a sense of where where everything lays and ivy my wife will will you know Give me a hard time sometimes that I'm too hard on myself about this or that. And you know, you'll see in my writings that I'm often talking about my limitations. But I think overall, I'm I try to be pretty realistic about them. You know, like a lot of cartoonists, Will Eisner said this as a writer on on its own, my writing is is not particularly spectacular. My my artwork is is you know always kind of wouldn't a little bit falling short, but but whatever I've got, it happens in between those two. And so, I'm pretty dispassionate about like analyzing the individual flaws that make up my artistic character. And and to some extent, flaws are kind of the building blocks of what we call style. It's whatever the hell you can't do. That's probably going to be uh, <laughs> your your epitaph. You know, uh, you know, like uh, Kurt Busiek recently mentioned the fact that something i had drawn the the heads were too shallow. You see a lot of my my early work, actually not early work, I mean like the first 25 years, the the heads didn't go back quite far enough. And and he referred to this as a McLeod trademark. And I was like, oh, fuck, I I got (laughs) to do something about that. That's awful. That's awful. The skulls don't make any sense.
0: No, it's just, yeah, it's heavily stylized in the vein of like, you're like a Mignola
2: type. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't mind being a Mignola type. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there, there's the interesting paradox of the cartoonist who's so good, such a natural, that that it's easy for them to devolve into what I think of as hand bragging, which is where where the ta- where you know, really know you can just you just set the hand going, and it's going to turn out something amazing. And you know, I sometimes wonder if if Mobius's artwork was just a little bit more shitty, if <laughs> he might have he might have somehow created something maybe a little more coherent in terms of a body of work. Because in a lot of ways, it's just like, here's another 80 pages of Mobius. Oh my God, it's (laughs) so good. And if anyone who, if you have ever seen video of him drawing, he just, he puts the pen down and goes, you know, he got, he got a hold of a Cintiq tablet like about 10 years ago, whatever. And there's video of him playing with it. And he does this almost incoherent scribble in blue. <laughs> and then over it, he just starts drawing, and he draws something magnificent. And There it is. He can just he do it any any time, day or night. He can just do it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you sort of bring that up because you know we we often profess that we are art novices or art idiots, you might say. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because you know we make a lot of comparisons, or at least I do, between comics and film. And one of the big things in film is sort of the idea of. The auteur that writes and directs their own work. So, do you think that yeah. there's any kind of special attributes that comes across when you have that that unity? Where because you know you've drawn most of the work you've written. Do you think there's mm. anything special that comes
2: out of that when you're sort of have that unity of craft in both camps? Well, this is interesting because many of those directors who we think of as auteurs. They didn't always write the entire script or, you know, sometimes it was co-written and yet we still think of them as having, as being a force in the writing and they weren't, they were rarely their own cinematographers. And yet we think of them as forces in the visual realm. And so in some ways with a cartoonist, this is sort of unpacking what happens with the cartoonist is that they have this influence over the visual. They have this influence over the story. And then their own personal talents are their sort of imperfect collaborators. You know, it's, does that make any sense? It's Leslie, you know, Scorsese was always, uh, accompanied by, is it Schoonmeyer? I think her, her name is. Oh, the Schoonmaker. Yeah. Schoonmaker. Thank you. Uh, his, his cinematographer. And yet there's, there is a trademark s- cinema, cinematographic. Wait, what's the verb, <laughs> you know, like look, feel to a Scorsese film, you know, and that's, that's the auteur, notion and so it's like a cartoonist even a lone cartoonist is still marshalling it's still a collaborative process it's just your it's a collaboration between the different component parts of one's artistic and and literary ability and some parts are better than others You know? so you know no matter who you are some parts are just better than others do you
1: do you sort of like think about it in that way like do you think i mean you're very critical of your artwork. I feel like. Do you think of yourself as a writer first, or do you think of it as a, a melded
2: practice? I think to this day, I think of myself as a writer first, because or as a excuse me, as an artist first, because that was those were my origins. I started out drawing comics for my middle school buddy Kurt Busick. and you know, I was the artist; he was the writer, and. I'm fascinated by writing. I'm fascinated by storytelling, by story structure, all of those things. But I do always think of myself as an artist first in the sense that, you know, without the visuals, I fall apart. Like I'm terrible when I have to just react to a script. The idea of reading a script and commenting on it, evaluating it, judging it is a nightmare to me. It's just like, they're just words. Where are the pictures? Whereas you, you slap down a portfolio full of comics pages in front of me, and I can begin to form an instant sense of, of what I'm looking at. And you know maybe I'll be a little bit judgy about it, but I probably won't let slip that. I'll try, try to frame it positively when I'm talking to this young artist or whatever. But you know you, I just get an instant sense of what needs to be done, how it's working, how it's not working. So I am still very, very visual, but be, ultimately I don't have a mastery over either domain. I'm just that whatever that in between something is, that seems to be where where I, I excelled at least enough to get noticed.
0: That makes me think, Scott. Um, we were when we talked about Zot. We marveled fairly extensively at the the layout breakdown that you put together for Chuck Austin on the Getting to Ninety Nine story. <laughs> And as far as the work that we talked about, there was only one title where you collaborated extensively with someone else, um, either as a writer or an artist beyond, you know, lettering and and coloring and that sort of thing. Um, But that was on Superman Adventures. I'm very curious, were you making breakdowns like that for every issue of Superman Adventures as well? Or did you write a traditional script for those issues?
2: Yeah, breakdowns is how I wrote it. I wrote them as breakdowns. And then what I did was I turned it into a regular old DC full script. Oh, interesting. And my artist uh, received the script. And along with the, every page was a little <laughs> thumbnail, which was a little condensed version of what I had done when I, was, when I was doing that. And it was my way of saying, I've done my due diligence. This can fit on a page. <laughs> Here's one way to do it, but go to town, have fun. and And most of all, I could sort of emotionally let go at that point cuz I'm such a control freak about every aspect of my work when I'm writing it and drawing it myself but if somebody else is going to draw it I want I want that release of saying I did my part now I can just relax I'm just th- it's a it's I, you know it's just this stage dive of ah, I don't know what's going to happen but I trust them you know I just trust them to to make it their own and so I I always say you know ignore this if you like <laughs> you know it's not like an Alan Moore script where really you you don't want to, you don't want to mess with what he told you to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I Superman Adventures, I find it very interesting because
1: it's, you know, one of your few sort of long-term or notable works sort
2: of within that. What's the term for it? The, I want to say the studio system. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> yeah. The big two. The assembly line if you want to if you want to be a little judgy or about it yeah
1: yeah yeah so I'm, I'm curious about what that experience was like for you what what challenges you found because it does seem like you're a person who likes having holistic control over your work
2: yeah i do i do but you know it's it's a philosophy of extremes and that is that that i indulge my monomaniacal desire to control everything on some work and then i indulge another side of my personality and like, I think you you had found some interview or something where, or maybe some intro where I had said something about it being my day job. Um, it was that in the sense that I had, I had chosen to look at it as a, a chance to work on my skills. You know, it was an exercise. It was, oh, I, actually it was an exercise, but there is something else about it. And that was the fact that it was a chance to write Superman with issue two because Superman had just been recreated without all of the cruft, without all of the continuity by people who I thought had a lot of good sense. I was old friends with Paul Dini. Um you know, I'd known him way back in the Cambridge days when we were first getting into comics and he had done the bible for it like he like he did uh, for Batman. Didn't know Bruce Bruce Timm, but I had visited them and you know, I just I, I mean Warner Brothers when they were working on it. But, but I had a lot of admiration for the idea of trying to recreate the magic of the character when the character was new. So here I was being given a chance, essentially, to ignore everything that had gone before and pretend that Superman was a brand new character. And I tried to, to bring it to that. So that, that made it a very fun day job. But it was still, ultimately, it was like, you know, if the end product wasn't something that I could be proud of, I still would have learned something. I'd still be okay with that. Because because that's all right. It's just a chance to do my best and just pass the baton, you know? And that's, I think, a healthy way to do it. It's when, it's when you give your heart over to something that you don't have control over. That's when they break your heart. And that's sort of the Hollywood principle, yeah. you know, what happens to a lot of people in Hollywood. Yeah. Is that, I mean, talking about sort of going back to that idea of control
1: and the idea of the continuity, is that something you think you would find very difficult to sort of like laboring under the amount of continuity uh, beneath,
2: like a Superman or any kind of you know storied Marvel DC book. Yeah, I'm a- I'm already working on a book that requires me to do three years of research. I don't really <laughs> need another one. <laughs> you know, it's so much and 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 so much of that narrative glop, as my friend Brian DeWan puts it, is so arbitrary. You know, it's re- it's not really about storytelling. It's just about this artist wants to piss all over the artist who came before, writer usually, it's the writer, you know, wants to piss on the writer who came before. It's, you know, it's about scratching out the, the faces of the previous pharaoh on the tomb you know it's just this it has nothing to do with stories it's all like hey that that thing you worked on for three years it was all a dream fuck you you know <laughs> it's just like uh, you know so much is just so random and meaningless yeah i mean yes there's there's some interesting stuff that comes out and there are folks like uh douglas woke who's i think it was douglas who recently wrote you know really decide to dive back into continuity and explore that that's I, I respect that and there is a kind of narrative mulch there that's really fun to dig through but man i don't want to be beholden to it i don't want to be confined by that that's that's awful just give me a character who can you know leap tall buildings with a single bound and bullets bounce off and he's from a planet that blew up and okay that's fine don't tell me anything else i i'm ready i'm i'm gonna go now i'm gonna make it happen you know going back a little it was that sort of the impetus for zot that it's sort of your way of playing
1: with that type of character while also having it be original and being able to sort of take
2: what you want and throw out what you don't want from a continuity or a historical perspective? Well, Sot, the thing to remember about Sot is that Sot was the one that came down the gumball shoot. I had, a, I had a sketchbook full of ideas, and right on the top was this sort of robot character that I was calling Bot that Kurt convinced me to make human and call Zot. And it could have been a number of other things, but I was really getting into sort of that Buck Rogers sensibility. And I was reading Hergé, I was reading Raw, I was reading 10 different things that had nothing to do with each other. And this was just this swirling pool of inspiration in my head. And I just thought, this one, I'm going to do this one. If I decided to start creating that pitch five months later or five months before, it might have been something else. And, you know, the course would have been set in a different direction. But you really. I think the premise of, I think the basic premise of Zot was Scott McCloud makes a comic, finally. <laughs> 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 to, some, to some degree, everything else was incidental, you know? Well, I think David
0: and I were both very tickled at the idea of bot becoming Zot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that appeals certainly. Uh, as you already know, I'm a big Peabody fan. So uh, oh, any, go. <laughs> any robot, there there's a there's a general certain uh, yeah, certain something that speaks to me in that. Um I would I'm I'm interested to hear you kind of talk about. You know, sort of the burden of continuity and compare it with something like Zot. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear, I guess, how you like how you kind of balance your your world building when, you know, you, you're you kind of expressing this admiration for something that's high concept that people can kind of latch onto. Uh, and there's sort of like a, a beautiful purity and the simplicity, I guess, is how I'd put it, of the idea to use that as a springboard. And I, and I think that meshes with a lot of what we see with, with Zot where you know Zot's world occasionally there's sort of forays into into sort of like gesturing at, at like what it really is or or what it all means, but it's something you seem yeah. sort of generally disinterested in and, and prefer to kind of establish its history more through tone and, and sort of pastiche and and sort of put it out there and say, you, you know what this is, just just go with it. Actually
2: it's slightly different because what happened there with Zot's world, I I believed in world building. and you know among my inspirations were people like uh, Mazer and, um, and uh, Chris no wait Christian and Mazer, no, that's not right. Uh, the Valerian team. Oh yes, yeah, for some reason the writer just flew out of my head. But I loved the way that they created worlds that were fully thro- thought through from the top to the bottom. What happened with Zot was I liked the idea of creating a lot of continuity, a lot of backstory, a lot of you know world building. In the process of creating this thing, I want to start off clean, start off, you know, high concept, and then have it get deeper and deeper. But it had to have a kind of thematic wholeness to it. It had to all fit together. It had to all say this one thing. And so the two worlds, of course, became pivotal, the idea of this world and that, and, and that I had love for both of them. And I was... I had sort of uh, split off the two sides of my personality that could, that could love this earth and could love the, the world of escape, the world of fantasy. But then I ran into that trouble that as the series went on, I realized that, that a true paradise, you know, a true utopia just wasn't very interesting. And, and any kind of real drama that happened on Zot's world was kind of messing with my premise. And in some ways, I never quite resolved that. That's come up when, when there was talk of making Zod into a TV show or a movie. I was always like, okay, fine, let's talk about it. But first, you got to solve this problem. <laughs> and I still haven't solved that problem. Uh, and so to some extent, the fact that I held back and didn't create a whole lot of continuity there was because I had this unsolved problem. And unsolved problems are very distracting. For a brain like mine, I, it's just like they 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 keep me up at night, and 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 also, of course, it was only thirty six issues, and you know, I wasn't doing like six hundred issues. Believe me, there would have been plenty of continuity. <laughs> I I personally feel like the two worlds,
0: you know, as far as a TV series or or a movie, maybe a bit more of a challenge. But I, the last issue of Zod is one of my favorite resolutions to a, to a story, and I think the. Choosing to put it in more of sort of like an, an ideal realm as opposed to uh, a real place in in that sense, with its own history, mm-hmm. uh, makes for a very nice sort of thematic tie-off with the the directions that uh, that those last few Earth stories have.
2: Thanks. I, I have to believe that it's possible to to create um, a richer, deeper world that still that still is able to deliver that same message at the end of the story. Uh, a message of escape or of a better world—you know, uh, the world that we should all aspire to—that sort of thing. The two are not incompatible, you know, in my opinion. It's just it. I, as as usual, as is kind of my my career uh, motif. Uh, I discovered the limits of my ability. <laughs> you know? There's just only so far I could go without without worlds colliding, both metaphorically and, I suppose, literally. In this case, or semi-literally. I don't know. Is that literal? they're fictional, whatever. Yeah.
1: It's, it's interesting that you call it a problem because I think, you know, maybe in the way that a lot of media or art ends up like the problem or the constraints of the problem sort of become the avenue towards a new direction. Um, Mm. was, was that sort of the later stages of Zot? Do you think that's more, was more pushed by your artistic interest in moving more in that direction or was it more by feeling like that's where the story was moving and like you were talking about with with the world just sort of being incompatible with with tension in a way or conflict
2: in some ways even though it's the last arc of stories the earth stories were i think in many ways transitional that is had this had the series kept going i think you would have seen it as sort of a bridge from one kind of story to another kind of story Almost an interlude. Uh, it's just that they happen to be at the end, and so I wove that into something that felt like an ending. But in many ways, it's a very unsatisfying ending. I mean, after all, I <laughs> I, I ended up the that that middle arc that you guys devoted an entire episode to because you're masochists. Um, <laughs> that at the end of that, you know, there's the whole thing about the 1965 and New Year's, and it's like. I never explained that. Um, <laughs> that's like the the doorway at the end of the universe. I had to explain that. And I probably I, I wrote about the. Um, I'm sorry. This is this is a tangent, but in in the Zop book, I know at least one of you actually uh, suffered through all of my intro material. Uh, did you I love I write it. About did I write about my kidney stone? <laughs> You, you know Does what? Sound, <laughs> that doesn't ring a bell. It doesn't ring a bell, but I uh, I can do a little digging and and verify. Because I can I tell s- you a st- I can tell you a story, but it's possible I already told you by way of print. But when I I had just on uh, Zot number seven, which is the one where they, they they you know get right up to where the door is. You know they're about to find out what's behind the door, and um and I, either I just sent it or I just done maybe I just done the layouts or whatever. But that was on paper but the following issue is not on paper. And I got I got very sick. Uh, I was throwing up. Everything was really horrible and I I called my uncle and my aunt who lived nearby. This is in upstate New York. And I went to the hospital, you know, and it was just hurting like hell. And I'm sorry, I said kidney stone. It was it wasn't kidney stone. It was my appendix. Kidney stones were later. And um, so, but I didn't know what it was at the time, and you know, they finally gave me some pain medication, and you know, I'm just lying there, and I start to feel a little calmer, and I'm just kind of looking up at the ceiling, and all of a sudden, I had this revelation. I just thought, I don't know what this is. This could be anything. I might have been poisoned. God knows what it is. But technically speaking, you know, just as as a rational human being, I had to admit the possibility that you know there was always a chance that whatever it was it was really bad, and that I might die. I might die at the age of 25, just lying there in a hospital room in upstate New York. And I swear to God, all I could think was how glad I was that I hadn't told anybody what was behind the door. <laughs> Nobody knew. Nobody knew at all. Not my editor. It wasn't on paper. I hadn't written it down. Uh, it, was, it would have been comics' greatest mystery. <laughs> you know, I would have died right before I did that issue.
0: It would have been a legacy for sure.
2: <laughs> did that? That, that would didn't... have been a legacy. <laughs> yeah, that's a legacy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that didn't play all at all into what was actually behind the door, did it? Like you already had a plan in mind, and the the you know the visitation from all these these figures, I guess, from Zot's life, particularly who had died.
2: Was that a yeah. factor in your in your hospital experience, or or that was already no, in the cards? I think yeah, it was already already in the cards. probably a lot of the details I hadn't filled in, but I had the general idea, and I was kind of unsatisfied with it. and And I've always thought of that as the ending that would have been better if I died. That would have been <laughs> it. Would have been far cooler, you know. The behind the door stuff, yeah, it was okay. It it served its purpose, but I always thought, no, 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 no. But that's not. That's not the great magic trick. That's not mm. the that that would have been a real Houdini move to to just <laughs> slip out of existence.
0: I think that's uh isn't that Chris your favorite issue? It's it's definitely
1: up among my favorites. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I found it very interesting just because it seems like one of those things where it's you know it's more about the idea of the mystery and it's one of I, I, I was mm. expecting it almost not to get resolved. So I was very yeah. pleasantly surprised when it did actually turn into something. So
2: I I I'm glad you're not dead, if only for that reason. <laughs> cool. You <laughs> you you have retroactively given me a reason to live. So thank you. <laughs> but uh but
1: I'm curious about sort of that the way that those sort of arcs become composed, you know, not even from a plot perspective, but from where you sort of it feels like your interests lie. like were you feeling that as you were working through it? because, you know, obviously, I think I remember one specific letter in a later stage Zot issue where they're saying, like, it's cool that you're doing this, but this isn't Zot. Like was that something that you felt as it was happening or felt consternation about that it was shifting
2: so dramatically in its tones? yeah, i was I was okay with the shift in tone, although i was I was cognizant of things that didn't quite fit within sort of the rules that I had set down for myself, even, even the implicit rules. You know, like when I talked about how I had rationalized whether or not to have the false ending in in Terry's story, at the end, one of the things that that cinched the deal for me was the fact that it wasn't quite a Zot story, if it ended, you know, only in that downbeat way, that it needed that balance of hope and disillusionment. So so I, you know, like, again, I think, as I said in the, in the collection, you know, uh, the coin flip always has to land on hope, you know, because, because the kid with the lightning bolt has his name on the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it was really about the balance between the two. Now, I should say that, you know, a lot of the story, to, the conception of stories was very intuitive. And even though I, you know, I joke about my four tribes, my toxic theory that, you know, there are these four different campfires that artists gather around and mine is definitely the formalist campfire i do like to impersonate my opposite number and i do like to have that much more intuitive much more what i call animist approach of just reaching into your chest and pulling out a blowing glowing ball of energy or whatever and so a lot of the the actual conception of stories comes from a much more mysterious place and i don't always have a you know a good explanation of where they come from but but as far as like what feels out of bounds or what feels harmonious with the ideas that I set down with the kind of the, the framework of the story that I set down uh, that stuff, obviously is much more the the rational editor side of me.
1: I, I find it interesting that it, because in some ways I, I understand that you definitely had a, a large array of influences, a lot of them being comics, but in some ways Zot doesn't feel like the comic that the fan of comics would necessarily make, especially in terms of like, right. How the thematic depth of it, like, is that something that you were very thoughtful about and wanting to, you know, like have deeper themes in the book and obviously, you know, melding that with the more, you could call it surface level, more classical
2: comic ideal. Right. This is the, this is the lake diver, uh, idea that, you know, I want to create something you could sail across and, and feel like you'd gotten the whole experience, but you could also dive beneath it if you wanted but that, to me, was just what, what made interesting fiction. You know, I wanted something that that worked on on that multi-level, uh, you know, way. I like the idea of, of something that had, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but something that was complete in and of itself on a simple level and complete in and of, of itself on a, on a deeper level. Does that make sense? And then as for, but what you said, I think is telling me, you know, the idea that this is not the book that a, this eclectic. Omnivore of comics might create. Well, you're right. And that was the tension that led to that dissatisfaction while I was working on the final issues, the ones that people actually like the most in many cases were done under tremendous stress because I was just dying to do understanding comics. So clearly I was I was not satisfying that side of me that had been had its mind blown by things like Pascal Dory and you know, one hundred and fifty thousand pages of Tessica and you know old gasoline alleys and you name it. You know, I I just saw comics as having so many dimensions, and I felt like I wasn't necessarily reflecting that in my own work. That that my work, for whatever its virtues, there was a slightly retrograde feel to it that that didn't feel like me.
1: So, what was do you think that what was that work feeding? You know, if you're not feeding the formalist side, the side that's fascinated by comics as a concept like what do you think those stories were feeding was it is it just more like an emotional or even spiritual
2: side of it well you know in some ways the story becomes the boss the longer you work on something and that is it's not your it's not you expressing yourself after a while it becomes a matter of wanting to be true to what the story wants what the characters want what the world wants you know, at Pixar, they say, when the story is not working, look to character. When the characters don't feel right, look to the world. There's a a kind of architecture of its own. And I think with every line you draw, you fill in another line in the contract that you have with that work to be true to it, to finish what you began in the spirit that you began it in. And I think that that's... So, even as even as it felt more that i was being more and more personal perhaps in the book i was in some ways losing myself a little that is that what what i wanted to just get up in the morning and make was maybe a little less what i was making every day if that makes any sense you know you got to remember not only did i do understanding comics but you know i was always making mini comics i was i was already getting interested in things like cd roms you know, even before the ink was dry on understanding, I was I was thinking about oh, digital comics. You know, what's that going to be? This would be for the web, for God's sake. Right? <laughs> you know, so my brain was going in a lot of directions all at once. Yeah, and I, I know David has
1: a uh, has a lot of questions about that field. I <laughs> get to <it>. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I was I was just curious about what the experience was like. You know, obviously, I think both it sort of comes across in the things you talk about in the collected works, like. The idea of one's first work, you're going to be pretty uh, pretty critical of it. But how was sort of how long had it been since you had revisited Saad, and how was it sort of revisiting it through our
2: stupid? <laughs> 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 well, fortu- fortunately, I had already done some of that therapy uh, by by doing the collection for Harper Collins. You know, so it was actually in going over those pages that I I got to reckon with it a little, and you know, I think. Perhaps, if there was a i don't want to say a revelation, but if there was something that maybe changed that changed my my view of it to find out that Zot still kind of stood stood at the top of the pack for you guys was was a really helpful thing to know you know, that out of the gate, I mean, you know, it has a bit of that Orson Welles living your life backwards uh, curse, but, but still it's just like, no, that was helpful to know because it's very easy for me to be a bit dismissive of, of the early stuff and just like, well, I tried this and it kind of failed. And then I did this other thing that kind of succeeded. And then I failed and then I failed and then I failed and then I failed. And, you know, like it's, so it's good. It's just good to get some calibration on that and to, and to know that the, the first thing that came out of my head, you know, it endures in some ways, you know, it's, it's all right. It's all right. And, you know, a lot of things that we kind of revere in comics are flawed, but nearly all of them are, you know, some of the things that, you know, these, these giant achievements, you know, man, there's always something wrong with them. So, so it's okay. That's like, yeah, it's odd. It's whatever. It's like, I, I might even come back to it. I even have a graphic novel filled with robots, by the way. David. oh <laughs> <laughs> it's a robot story um you know, that I may come back to at some point but it but because it's me, it'll probably be very, very different right. from the first the first run because that seems to be my my um tendency, you know like I like film filmmakers like kubrick who who rarely made the same. Uh, movie twice, although they definitely use the same shot more than once, often <laughs> enough.
1: It's, I think we can all endeavor to, to, however many years on in our career, say, Oh, you know, it's just Zot and sort of toss that off as you know, one of my lesser
2: works. It was Zot. <laughs> no, I appreciate yes. that. Hey, it just occurred to me my air conditioning just went on. Let me shut it off so you don't get that whirring sound. Um, you can always edit this out or or leave it in. Just just chat among <laughs> yourselves. I'll it's, be back. Inside in, baseball. Yeah, right. 20 <laughs> seconds. I'll be right back. I think, it, I think it's in the spirit of got
0: the runs that we, uh, <laughs> we keep that in. In the interest of full transparency and uh, talking about the logistics of how to record <laughs> and then leaving it in the final episode. It's true though so we must leave in the AC talk.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Feel free.
0: Well, speaking of, uh, you mentioned the great works uh, of comics that may have some flaws. I want to talk about The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was desperate to read this book. We could not find it anywhere, sadly. So the only thing that I have seen of it is uh, is the excerpts that you have posted on your website which i found fascinating just i guess in light of the political climate in the states right now we we are in in canada and oh, maybe yeah. disconnected from some of that but is is that a book that you have gone back to uh any time in the past like 5 years because i feel like today it would read fascinatingly
2: it would definitely read differently uh yeah for all its problems it actually it, it does have a couple of like Almost two on the nose, prophetic little bits in there. Um, and by the way, I think I probably have copies somewhere. I might, I might have to turn the studio upside down, but I'd be happy to say you have no, ob- <laughs> you have absolutely no obligation to do an, an uh, another episode on it or anything. But I, I may be able to get you a copy of that. Oh, well, try and just, talk uh, me out of it. Yeah, just, just, just remind <laughs> me at the end of the episode. But um, yeah, it was. The thing about Lincoln, and this is true of reinventing comics too, is a lot of it was just something that had been in my brain too long, that had been put off and put off and put off. You know, after understanding came, I've I've always said that I did. I was a very confident creator until I actually had some success, and then my confidence (laughs) crashed completely, and I had several years of just writer's block and terror, and you know, it, it got really bad. And I had kids that was great, but you know, that's, that's a kind of existential crisis all its own. And, you know, you're ready for the, you know, the female praying mantis can eat you now. And it's just (laughs) like, there's just like, I'm thinking about death and then I have to travel a lot and then, you know, uh, and and I'm obsessed with uh, computers all of a sudden. And it's just, and I wasn't publishing anything. Nothing was coming out. I was spending all my time on all this other stuff and nothing was coming out. And, and I just panicked and after a while it's just like I got to publish something you know I I came out with a book that did really well understanding did well a lot of people liked it but it was what 6 years before anything else came out except for i mean except for superman adventures which doesn't count you know in a way <laughs> at least in in the mcleod universe it's like mm-hmm. no, no 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 that doesn't count that doesn't right. count that was just a thing i did so then out comes lincoln is like oh my god but reinventing also was talking about things that i've been thinking about for several years you know a lot of those ideas they just been sitting for too long in the refrigerator and they were starting to get kind of funky um, and clearly I just need to clear them out of my system. I just need to mm-hmm. take a really long dump and, and just get it all out on paper so I could move on with my life
0: right speaking of uh, ideas that uh, have been in the fridge a little bit too long and uh, and also <laughs> seamlessly transitioning to reinventing comics we uh, when we were talking about reinventing comics we were kind of marveling at uh, some of the ideas that you put forward about the industry at the time in terms of you know mm-hmm. we need more diversity of creators we need more diversity of genres and the extent to which some of those, I mean, I think we've made some headway on some of those things in the intervening 20 years, (laughs) but I, I was kind of surprised to how much of it I was like, you could publish this today and it would pretty much still be true. Is that something that you find like, I guess, do you find that discouraging? I assume yes, but how do you think we've made sort of strides in
2: those areas? Well, this is actually one of the few places where I, I have a different perspective than you guys. I, I I'm old enough that I have to look at what's happened in the interim as as a generally positive trend. Certainly, in the matter of gender, I talked about gender balance, which is a slightly antique phrase now because that implies the binary. I suppose we'd say gender diversity now, but I mean, we could be majority female as an industry in the next in the next several years. So that that would have to count as progress, you know, unless you're a member of certain weird, you know, <laughs> <laughs> splinter groups in comic sculpture. <laughs> and so there is there is some real progress there, and and of course not just gender, but you know, uh, sexuality. I think that we're probably most behind on the matter of uh, racial diversity. It's kind of an outmoded term, but that's distinct from. You know, um, you know, folks with uh, different ethnic backgrounds. I we are seeing at least some progress on that, but I think that's probably where we we uh, have have gone the the shortest distance. But diversity of genre, my God, you know, you've got to look at the whole of it. I mean, like, especially the the ascendance of kids comics, uh, which themselves tend to to have a pretty progressive, you know, um, coloring to them. And just, you know, all the crazy genres and all the sort of things that proliferated online. And, you know, taking advantage of what I call the sort of the side door diversification rather than the front door diversification. Because in the days when it was just the comic store, then, you know, if you did a comic about some unusual subject, people would have to come in through the front door. They'd have to already be coming, looking for comics to come across it. And so you had this diminishingly small potential audience for your golf comic because what golf… Golfers are even coming in the store. They're not looking for. It. Whereas when when it comes out online, like with the gaming comics, well, gamers found those comics. They didn't have to already be reading comics. They're just like, here's a thing about gaming with pictures. And so we we saw quite a. If you really look at it, there's been tremendous diversification of genres. It, but you have to look at all the different types, right? You don't don't just look at what's happening in Marvel and DC, but look look at kids comics, look at uh, web comics look at you know the increasing number of translated comics and there it's it's actually a pretty encouraging scene now do we need to make a lot more progress absolutely you know it's still we still have a long long way to go but we've we really have come a long way i sound like i don't know Ah, this just like the eternal optimist yeah, I'm, <laughs> until I'm an Obama Democrat. You know, it's, just like, it's just like, no, but think of the progress we've made. But we have, we really have. And and I am optimistic in that. So I'm more optimistic in some ways about what happened with the first half of the book, where, where I'm talking about all the different ways the comics can reinvent itself in the traditional sense versus perhaps the digital revolutions, which were kind of my Waterloo to a degree. Though, I, you know, in some ways I, I turned away from them in hopes that they would take care of themselves and they still might because, <laughs> you know, hey, it's a book about the future. Maybe mm-hmm. it still is. You, know? <laughs> you never know. You well, never know. That That's interesting
0: because I was going to say, I feel like an area where undeniably there's been progress is in the technological realm, perhaps not in terms of the story presentation, but in terms of. The tools that are available to creators, both in from a technical standpoint of the actual creation of the comic to mm. um, some of the distribution methods, have, have you been following like the sort of industry news about like the Substack stuff?
2: Yeah, Substack sounds hauntingly familiar i'm not sure i mean like <laughs> i ha- i have written here in my notes cross gen 2.0 question <laughs> mark yeah <laughs> is I, that what you're what you're kind of thinking of yeah i just i i, I subscribe to one sub stack it's bill mckibbins he's an old mm-hmm. friend of mine and uh, and you know a great thinker on environmental issues but i i worry for them you know i worry that that you're going to have that the long tail you know that the shape of that community is going to be a, a sharp spike on the left and and a pretty pretty quick decline to you know in terms of numbers for the great majority of people on that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I was so gung ho on 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 micropayments was just the any kind of currency that exists as as a common currency online would would have released us from the obligation to have these gigantic vendors, but. Gigantic vendors is what we have, you know, because because people only want to sign up for a service so many times, right? And so that's that's when you get Amazon and iTunes and and a few others, and then people just get tired and they just don't they don't want to do it anymore. Whereas if you had nickels and dimes that you could drop in anybody's pocket, then there's you don't need to have these giant portals. Mm -hmm. And so it it really did it had consequences. I may not have been right about the solution, but I was right, I think. About some of the toxic consequences of not having that solution,
0: right? Do you? Um, we're we're going to be recording uh, our episode uh, on Brian K. Vaughn and uh, Marcos Martins' uh, "The Private Eye," which they released through Panel Syndicate. Oh um, wow! I haven't which, read that one. It's a it's a great read. We'll we'll save our talk uh, for <laughs> for the episode, but I, I bring it up because Panel Syndicate, I'm not sure if you're familiar, it is a website that they put together so that they could do their own distribution digitally on a pay what you want model. Yeah. In terms of kind of bridging the gap between micropayments and sort of the traditional system, does it does it give you hope at all to see success in that area, even if it's just through like fairly big name and, and well-known creators?
2: Yeah, I, I am encouraged by the, the I don't want to say the success of crowdfunding, because that's maybe a little too um, unambiguous, um, <laughs> but the the hopeful, you know, signs of crowdfunding and the staying power so far may not be permanent, it may may not have set up permanent uh, foundations in 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 the art economy, but it has been around a little bit further, a little bit longer than I thought. Kickstarter and Patreon have lasted a little longer than I thought, and that gives me some hope. The one thing that they do demonstrate, you know, speaking of micros, is there is that principle that you have a somewhat different economy when the producer of the work is scraping out eighty five percent of the proceeds or something in that realm, versus Say ten percent or fifteen, which you have to remember is the is the percentage for many print creators. That's quite a difference—a difference of you know eight times. And so the money raised, you know, by people, you know, uh, aggregators like—I don't know if she would consider herself an aggregator—but you know, ring ring like Spike, uh, you know, or individuals going at it. A lot of a lot of money's moved through the gates. I mean, that's and and much of it went to the creators. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty extraordinary. You know, you just after a while sometimes it can sneak up on you that that there's a river and the river runs night and day and a lot of water is passing through. You know, that's that's the money and crowdfunding right now. That's that's a pretty big river all of a sudden and it's and it's becoming a, a seemingly permanent part of the landscape. That's exciting. That's exciting. Really? And um and so that is hopeful. And it does demonstrate the power of the consumer dollar when it's not reduced to a tenth, which which is the actual meaning of decimate turns out. <laughs> Though so it's frequently misused. Yes, um, you're you're thinking about oh, no no to, no I'm wrong no no that's not the meaning of decimate no reduce no Reduced by no. one reduce reduce tenth yes. yes no I just <laughs> I just demonstrated my ignorance sorry oh it's all right we'll we'll edit it out um, <laughs> uh, I, I,
0: but I think what you're kind of referring to here is in terms of like the amount of money that ends up uh, going directly to the creators being increased by such a wide margin means that we can see a book be brought to print with like a, a sum total like, you know, you can get a Kickstarter off the ground and completed with $8,000, which I feel uh, I, I'm not intimately familiar with the budgets of, uh, of some of the the larger publishers, but that seems low <laughs> to me to, awesome. as, we, yeah, as far as bringing a, bu- a book to, uh, to print. Um, you'll
2: see, you'll see a fair number of Kickstarters, you know, that, that, that will land, um, you know, uh, six figures, you know, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an encouraging sign. And, uh, now I could, I can't say exactly what, you know, POD and, you know, other, you know, the, the sort of fulfillment costs that they have to pay are like these days. And they, they may be extremely steep. I'm not sure, but still it's, it, it makes me smile. And, um, you know, but but I mean, often it's the digital you know thing that you're supporting, and certainly with Patreon, that's almost always the digital mm-hmm. that you're supporting, which we said is very little in terms of production costs.
0: Right. It seems like the go-to formats, as far as the the files themselves PDFs and CBRs and and CVZs, are are pretty much uh, by definition emulating the page. Is that
2: is that a, a point of frustration for you yeah. at all? To yeah. Well yes and and so we returned to my Waterloo. Yeah. <laughs> um I think you know a lot of my initial fervor for what what we wound up calling the in- infinite canvas it's it's my term but it also mm-hmm. kind of organically caught on and became the thing that people called called them the initial impetus was this idea of like a, a zillion different shapes but what I continue to hold out hope for is really the very practical storytelling advantages of these, these different spatial approaches that I think, I think could really serve a story. Uh, you know, Just something as simple as the space between panels, which if you look at 100 years of comics, the last 100 years of comics, there's very little variation in the space between panels because nobody wants to waste paper. But that has a rhetorical opportunity. You know to 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 vary that spaces to you know potentially to to change the sense of pacing in the story and the idea of not having to constantly break at the end of the page that disco beat at the end of the page that's Mm -hmm. enforced where you know like we would never put up with that in film we would never want to to constantly have to but you know like oh you know you have like uh 15 seconds of blank screen You know, every uh, every two minutes just because and it's Mm -hmm. like, why, why not? Why not allow the canvas to just stretch for as long as the story demands? Let the let the let the story determine the shape. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you correctly noticed that a lot of, you know, a lot of the links to things that I think work, they're all dead links well the death of flash you know, the flash, anymore. Yeah. You know <laughs> yeah that yeah <laughs> i
0: Absolutely. think that that really put a lot of them in the ground because even i think we when we originally started recording flash might have still been you know on it on a clock but still around and and a lot of them were still up and running yeah it it's
2: it's you know, that we were warned this, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks early on were just saying, no, you don't realize these things are not forever. And we are mm-hmm. like, ah, sure they are. And it's like, no, ah, they'll be up forever. You know? And it's like, no, no, standards do, do get overturned.
0: I, I'm curious if you've ever had the opportunity to use uh comiXology's
2: guided view function. Yeah, a little bit. I, you know, it's not evil. Um, <laughs> I think it has potential, but uh the thing that bugs me is just like just why have pages at all you know like well okay mm-hmm. they were they were these things were created for pages but then why does everything have to be repurposed why not create something for guided view mm-hmm. because guided view Theoretically, guided view would be a fine way, you know, an okay way at least to get around um, something that's created more in an open format, like the kind I was thinking of. And they may have they may have experimented with that. I, I mostly just use it as a convenience for reading up on things that I couldn't find in print, and and they're okay. I mean, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I use the service sometimes, but oh, man, the page, the page, the page, <laughs> page is my enemy. It if you need if you want to subdivide your canvas, if you want to have a shape that encloses a certain number of panels at a regular interval, that's that should be your option. That shouldn't be your obligation as a creator. You should be able to create whatever size and shape uh, subdivisions work to the benefit of your story and your artistic vision, not because of some technology. Print is the technology that's getting in the way. And we tend to think of it as like, oh no, don't let technology mess up my comics. It's like you're already reading a technology. That's a technology. Print is a technology, and the and the that technology of print is speaking more loudly, I think, than people realize. It's it has a real strong material effect on what the artist can do.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if it uh, if it kind of factors into like we're we're talking about like you know it's it's a lot easier for creators today to find success through through crowdfunding and at the same time we have this this difficulty kind of getting away from the page sort of as a structure uh, do you feel like that's just a function of like in comics print is basically still king like there's a certain legitimacy or prestige that comes with uh, a work appearing in print that that the the medium has just never really been able to shake off
2: yeah there, there are a few things going into it i mean one we do we do have an association with digital goods as being more ephemeral more valueless although that doesn't seem to be true with well, no, it is true now. you are about to talk it about was, NFTs. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. In a minute. In a minute. No. Let's not go down that road yet. Uh, but I mean, um, the all you can eat services, for instance, you know, right. in terms of video are, I think, much more popular. Uh, I don't really know what kind of business the, the uh, a la carte buying is, but I, I think far more people would rather watch their TV shows and movies. Uh, via uh, a Netflix than by buying them on iTunes or whatever or whatever they call that service now that sad little thing, <laughs> um, and so and so really the individ- the value of each individual episode of Squid Game or whatever it's just like what what is that worth I don't know, I don't know. it's just like oh, no, I just I have Netflix what it's worth is the forty minutes it takes me to watch it I guess mm-hmm. you know and so and so it's very hard to put a value. On on that, but um, where the hell was I going with this? Wait, what was your question? Hang on. Oh,
0: oh, about like okay. the the sort of perceived uh, additional legitimacy or prestige. of oh, yeah, print.
2: yeah. At least print print is something familiar and solid and enduring, and it's the prize at the end. It's just like yeah, I, I paid some money, I got a thing. People still understand that, and and print can be beautiful. Print can be you know exciting as long as. <laughs> and what the hell i mean as long as you're looking at pages regardless if we're not taking any any advantage of the online format for you know the shape of the presentation then it's the same thing it's just it's the same thing but it stays it's just, you know like it's like you're, you're you're looking at the same format online anyway so you might as well get the print you know, until, until you have to move like me and you you remember how (laughs) long it takes to put all that stuff in boxes.
0: Oh, well, uh, as you can see, I'm sitting in front of about half of my print materials here, which Chris has helped me move on more than one occasion. Um, and and has not let me forget about it. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) It's It's an an undertaking for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But,
1: but do you think that to some extent, you know, I'm because I've I've been sort of thinking as you've been talking about the idea that I I feel like to some extent film or TV don't necessarily leverage the nature of online either. You know, the the one thing I sort of think of is the Black Mirror episode Bandersnatch, which is sort of an interactive piece of yeah, media. Yeah. But do you think that there's just so, sort of the inherent idea that and it, any kind of experimental form is always going to be pitched at the niche audience or, or like a, a, a hyper niche audience because, you know, experimental film even today is it's always going to be quite niche.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, anything that I mean, uh, experimental narrative forms are by their nature going to yank you out of whatever world it is that they, that they can be a window for. You're going to be aware of and constantly re- reminded of the artifice of what you're watching, what you're reading. And so um, that is that yeah, that's their nature absolutely. And of course that you know I'm always haunted by that possibility that a lot of the things I would love to see happen in the end, they fall prey to the the conspicuous format problem, right? You know, where where you can't just lose yourself in a story because you're reminded of the of the frame. But I do think that there are many less conspicuous versions that are nevertheless pretty revolutionary when you get rid of the page. But I just failed to prove it. I failed to articulate it. That was my first sin. And then I failed to prove it, you know, with my own work online and whatnot. Um, and so it was just one of those battles I had to turn away from and see if somebody else had the energy to come back and, and do it. And I could be the old, sci- you know, the old scientist living on the Island in seclusion that the, <laughs> that the kids have to take a rowboat to and say, no, no, but you don't understand your ideas. They can save the world. And I'm like, no, you kids, you don't understand. And, you know, we have got the secret <laughs> yeah, to the infinite canvas buried yeah. somewhere in a box that you just have to rummage <laughs> have through. To, <laughs> yeah, they have. They have to bring me back to life and tell me, no, <laughs> you have to have hope. <laughs> I saw David's ears perk up when you said rowboat. <laughs> I robot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, love robots. I, I had a thought,
1: but it was taken away by my great joke. <laughs> um, but do, do you think that like, because, you know, I think if, if there is a folly, perhaps, to reinventing comics, it's, it's sort of like what you said, that maybe you didn't see the right solution at the time, but you saw the problem. So do you think maybe it's just mm-hmm. that, you know, the solutions are coming through avenues that, you know, you might not expect? You know, I mean, like even thinking about like memes or, you know, just comics that get posted independently on Twitter or something like that, that sort of it's just developing
2: in ways that you couldn't have possibly foreseen. Yeah, and I and I have to believe in. There's a futurist named Paul Saffo who has the twenty-year rule that you know any good idea takes about twenty years to gestate. So uh, you know I know, and this again, this is one of the reasons I could turn and just like spend years working on graphic novels and just figure somebody else is going to figure it out because any potential that an art form has sooner or later, you know, folks are going to find it. And yes, they may come from an entirely different angle than what I was thinking of, than what I was proposing. But but the principles will be there. There are there are principles that I still believe in, even if the specific implementations I was suggesting, you know, don't come to pass. Uh, you know, if we're not all using flash or whatever. Just the potential of space and the artificial qualities of the printed page, they speak to certain basic formal principles of comics that I think are not going to change. I think that the the shape of a cash economy in an online context is something that's still going to be very interesting to see. And you know, I am a little sad that cryptocurrencies, in addition to possibly boiling the planet, and that's not good, um, they also um, became instruments of investment more than cash. I'm a little sad about that. But the principle is still there: that you know, if it was really easy for me to drop a dime or a nickel in your pocket, that would change things. It would change things and would change things because of principles that haven't gone away. But you can see me in reinventing, straining, straining in all of these kludgy, overdrawn, stiff panels (laughs) to get across the idea that, okay, there's the idea, and then there's where we are right now in 2000, right? And I kept trying to get that across that, you know, but it just somehow it's still it's still, I get dragged back to the hell of when I made it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like it's it's still dated. It's still, there was nothing, no matter how hard I tried, it's still dated. Well, I think anyone writing about, uh,
0: you know, technology pretty much runs that risk <laughs> I, yeah. I, it would be pretty difficult not to date yourself when you're talking about the specific you know we we laughed a little bit about how you talk about photoshop in in reinventing comics as oh yeah to how you talk about it in making comics it's unavoidable if you're talking about the tools that are available at the time you know as they develop further people are going to be look looking back and saying look at look at that primitive uh, specimen trying to you know draw swirls with his photoshop and now we can you know i now- saw you post like an explorable 2D space on Twitter the other day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, that looked cool, didn't it? Yeah, it did um, look cool. Yeah. yeah, it's like my real problem there was like, I should have done exactly what you did. It's like, I should have found the humor in, uh, you know, I, I should have been laughing at it too because I really was, you know, on some level, it's like a, uh, my friend Don Simpson had called it going through the bad art vortex. <laughs> That's what essentially what I was trying to say is go through the bad art vortex. And I should have illustrated that in a more riotous way instead of trying to like show any respect at all for that kind of stuff. Because really what it is is just like, yeah, you can just use these tools to do what you're already doing. And it's going to look a lot more stately and a lot more respectable. Or you can just make a whole lot of crazy garbage. <laughs> That that's just like what you want to do because it's like, oh, look at this fun thing and just throw it all on a pile. And if you really get into that junk pile, you're gonna come out of it with a more native sensibility. You know, you're gonna you're gonna have a better appreciation for what the tools can really do and perhaps do something that's genuinely new. But first you have to go through the bad art vortex. You have to do the like, you know, the zillion swirls and twirls and sphere eyes mm-hmm. filters and you know, all <laughs> that junk um, in order to, to find that place. Yeah.
1: And I think that, you know, maybe that goes back to the idea you're talking about of sort of having the ideas be in the fridge too long that you sort of became, I don't want to say too married, but like that, that you cared so much that that maybe affected your ability to, you know, maybe take a step back and look at it in that more, that less uh, caring a little less almost.
2: Yeah, yeah, in a way, or or having a better what I what I call a saliency map, you know, having a better understanding of how things were interlocking in terms of importance and that I really didn't have to show my work and I really didn't have to put everything in the book. It didn't have to be this giant. I mean, in some ways, reinventing comics is just my visual notes that should have been like draft number two. And then I should have come in and done draft number three where I took those notes and I actually did a book out of it. But it was very stiff and it was very crowded. And I hadn't figured out what, what made makes for good nonfiction comics. Something that I, I finally figured out. I didn't understand why understanding comics worked. And that one didn't. And my tools sucked. This is one of one of the things is it was drawn digitally, but it was drawn on a little Wacom tablet separate from the screen, right? And I didn't have my Cintiq yet. And I believed, I firmly believed that if I just did this long enough that it would become natural it never became natural it is not natural to draw entirely separate from from what's on the screen no matter how much control you get it's always going to be stiff and of course the machines could barely handle you know like the the, the images and ugh It was just, uh, and all (laughs) of the panels were so crowded, and I had so many panels of me just standing there with a giant word balloon and a thing (laughs) behind me, and you know, oh, there's that eye again, and oh my god, we love eye. I feel like we're resurrecting bad memories now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's the it's the ten pounds of potato salad problem. It was like eating ten pounds of potato salad.
1: But I'm curious, so. You know, since you you know came from that and making comics, so was the sculptor sort of intentionally your effort to sort of make a more conventional work? Like, did because obviously you have these things on your mind so constantly, and then you make something which you know, for, formally speaking, I would fe- I feel as like a fairly conventional work. So
2: mm-hmm. was that um was that an intent going into it? So help me God, I will never deliberately make a, a conventional work. <laughs> you know, like that's like, <laughs> as long as I live, you will never catch me deliberately doing that, you know, like and you'll never catch me doing anything that's like a lot of people said, oh, so I like saw because it's so back to basics. It's like, man, that was never where I was going. <laughs> you know, it's like what with Sculptor, what it was, was I had come up with many different... And not all this went in things like reinventing. A lot of this was me figuring out stuff afterwards. But I'd come up with all the ways that comics were broken, printed comics were broken, all the ways that comics I felt were not a satisfied reading experience, not as satisfying as I wanted them to be. And a lot of it had to do with catering to that—that the tyranny of the page. Um, And so working digitally, I found ways to work around that particular aspect of it. And that resulted in my giant layouts, which is where I would lay out like 40 pages at a time on these single Photoshop documents where you could see lots and lots of pages and they were all in rows so that I would think instead of thinking as it being from page to page and thinking of the individual pages having its own structural integrity, instead, I thought of it more as a river. And I could be like a filmmaker. I could take a panel out, put a panel in, Just like a filmmaker would, you know, like when editing, you know, when you, oh, what if we cut this a few seconds earlier? That's a better shot. We can't do that in comics because every time you do that, now you have to put some glop in to fill in the missing space because you have to lead up to the end of the page and it has to be time to the turn of patience. Just fuck that stuff. So if comics is broken, if I have to work in print, I'm going to find ways to subvert the page and think in terms of panel to panel to panel to panel and so i have this space in between these rows of pages where i can take take all of those those cutouts all of those panels that i've cut out and the panels that i'm putting in and i could just like be taking out and putting in all the time just like i'm editing a film and i can make sure that the central unit of it is the panel is is the is the transition between panels so I always have forward momentum. And then I take a note from Tezuka, my my favorite Japanese artist, and try to find each page be like just stones thrown down on the ground, just something a little random, a kind of find some randomness in it. And yeah, maybe the pages have a kind of integrity of their own, but they always will. If you randomly throw down those panels, one way or another, they're always going to have a certain amount of integrity to them. And so... For all its flaws, the one thing that worked with the sculptor is a tremendous number of people told me that they read it in one sitting, and it's mm-hmm. almost 500 pages long. So it's like, even you know, even if I have reservations about the story, even if you know it may have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, one way or another, a lot of people love it. A lot of people don't like A lot of people hate it. But a, an extraordinary number of people, without prompting, would tell me at talks and whatnot that they read it and all, all in one sitting. And that meant that it was in a near literal sense, it was a page turner. And I think that's because I had transcended the page as a unit and kept to this monomaniacal obsession with the panel as a unit, because to me, that's the atomic unit of comics, not the page, but the panel. Yeah! Wow. I mean
1: that. I just thinking back to the sculpture now. I think that makes tons of sense. I totally I get what you mean by it being a page turner. That like the idea of transcending the page is is fascinating. I'm I'm cognizant of the time here. Uh, Just uh, so maybe a couple of sort of ending ending off things. Is there sure not? I
2: should I should warn you. I did take some notes on the oh. episodes so i oh, oh. I well on. This, <laughs> this is this ties <laughs> so in right.
0: to uh, to what chris was alluding to at the at the top of the episode not that uh, i was shocked that you would uh, that you would listen to uh <laughs> got the runs but that you would Listen to people talk about your work and and put words in your mouth or thoughts in your head without having the opportunity to respond would drive
2: me crazy. Now, so you, please. you guys were actually you were pretty good at it. <laughs> you, you were pretty good at at intuiting what my intentions were. There were just there are a couple of places where it wasn't entirely true, but but yeah, I. Uh, but no, you should go ahead and ask whatever questions you still have on the, on the docket, Chris. And then uh, I have a few where you had some unanswered questions or some mysteries that you're, or you know, one or two places where where you might have guessed not quite right. And I'm I'm happy to to let you know. I mean, basically, well, to answer the questions. This is incredibly exciting. I w- I was just going to ask if you sort of talk
1: since we've talked so much in this uh, last little chunk here with with your eye on the future, is there something that you think is is not being talked about or that is just on the horizon that you think? Will have an impact on the industry, whether it's something directly in comics, whether it's something that's you know coming through other means. I you know you know we we alluded to NFTs, which have sort of maybe changed the <laughs> landscape a bit in terms of the valuation of art, maybe for the worse. But do you have any? Do you have anything like that that you have your
2: eye on? I should say at least something about NFTs specifically, but to the general question, I think unfortunately we might. We might see some retrograde action. I think that there there is there was a lot of forward motion. I think we might have a two steps forward, one step back. You know, in our near future, um, as industries consolidate, as some markets fall apart. I mean, we had this tremendous disruptive event of the pandemic, which changed people's you know buying habits, and we haven't necessarily seen all of the fallout from that. You know i worry for a lot of bookstores and comic stores for example but no i think you know there's still that unfinished business of the shape of comics and in and in comics more than almost any other form the shape matters the shape has real consequence so you know yeah a lot of the old things could come back come roaring back a lot of my old obsessions from the aughts you know about the digital stuff uh to, to nft specifically I actually did a Bitcoin comic. I, I have a, a lot of interest in nonfiction comics right now. And a couple of guys from Japan came out and talked to me for three straight days. This was the anniversary of of the white paper that began Bitcoin. And, and with it began you know what we think of as modern cryptocurrencies. And they wanted me to explain it. And they were part of a splinter group, the Bitcoin cash people, because they felt like they didn't like the fact that Bitcoin had become just an instrument for uh for investment and there were there were folks involved in sort of i don't want to say the administration of it exactly because it doesn't work that way but but uh, those who had the power to steer it one way or the other were making decisions that made its use as an investment more likely than its use as cash and it was originally created as cash now, putting aside the, the, the environmental question of whether or not uh, it's destroying the planet, which is a good question to ask, and we all should, because that's kind of important, uh, <laughs> whether the computing power is, is eating up too much electricity and whatnot. But putting that aside for a moment, the idea of a stateless currency that can, that's infinitely divisible is interesting to me. And the white paper does still posit some really interesting ideas. So I did create a, white, uh, a comic which explains the white paper. And and so I think it's probably it's probably my favorite nonfiction comic. But I'm also I'm also figuring out how nonfiction comics work. And that's going into my visual communication book that I've been working on longer than almost anything in my entire career at this point. It's been going for a long time. And the layouts are currently at 561 pages and I want to cut about 150 of them. But I really have figured out a lot about what makes what makes what you might call explanatory comics satisfying, and what makes them frustrating? And I'm trying to do more of the former and less of the latter. Uh, and you can see some of that on display in the in the in the Bitcoin comic. But um, yeah, cryptos, yeah, you have to it, it, NFTs and crypto are it's a Venn diagram. You know, they 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 intersect, but they're kind of two different things in the sense that. NFTs. Some of the flaws of NFTs have nothing to do with Bitcoin. Some of the flaws of Bitcoin have nothing to do with NFTs. I see NFTs primarily primarily as wealth redistribution, and I would like it to stay confined to the rich for the most part. <laughs> I I worry horribly that that uh, people without money are going to invest a lot of money in it or a lot of their hopes in them because I think that's a pretty savage long tail problem that that a few a few will benefit greatly and many will not. It is to some degree a Ponzi scheme, but then, hell, any kind of investment is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, The art market is a Ponzi scheme. I think the absurdity that people see in cryptocurrencies really just illuminate the fact that they have failed to see the absurdity in money generally. Uh, Money is extremely weird, and it is a consensual illusion. But to the extent that it's a consensual illusion that can have effects in the real world, it's useful, right? And should it achieve a certain stability, it can be useful in the long run. The stability is missing, clearly. <laughs> we don't have the stability yet. But yeah, I still, I still think crypto is interesting. I think that to the degree that it becomes very effective in its original mission is the degree to which uh, a lot of countries are going to be pretty alarmed. And maybe, maybe justifiably so. Because it can it can facilitate some pretty scary stuff. I'm scared a lot about a lot of things. So that's just background noise almost. But yeah. It's you know, the reasons that people say, Oh, this stuff is dangerous, yeah, it could be. The reasons people say this stuff is crazy, yeah, it absolutely is crazy. But Man, that's a really complicated answer to a question nobody really <laughs> even asked. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was I was hoping we would get to hear you go off on uh, on NFTs, so I'm yeah. certainly satisfied. <laughs> yeah. I'm very sympathetic to those who hate them. Uh, and finding out that Carol Baskin from Tiger King was <laughs> ha- issuing <laughs> NFTs to me was the perfect like that's <laughs> That
0: sums, sums up the topic. state of NFTs.
2: <laughs> 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 yeah, that's the crowning achievement of this cultural moment is, is Carol Baskin has NFTs now.
1: <laughs> well, uh, well, speaking of being scared, I think to your earlier point, one place, one form of media where the shape matters quite a bit is the Halloween series of films. <laughs> Huh? how so how so oh, <laughs> I, that, that got a that did not get the reaction I before. uh in famously in the in the credits to halloween michael myers is credited as the
2: shape oh oh interesting. sorry sorry i that's actually okay. only see the first one that's that was a, so long ago i barely remember it that was you got one up on me reaction.
1: scott
0: <laughs>
2: exactly i guess that
1: is pretty deep, much what i was hoping deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> um, <but laughs> someone's gonna laugh at that i hope um but yeah just in in the spirit of wrapping up before we get to your uh to your your uh your notes on us yeah you know talking about obviously you know you were the first person that we covered uh we when we were talking uh over email we discussed some of the uh Creators that we were hoping to cover next, but is there a creator that you would like to see a deep dive on that you think maybe would might might, uh, might go overlooked that we can look at?
2: Yeah, well, um Kelly has an advantage that I offered you, which is that his career is not overly voluminous and it's tremendously varied. And uh, I think if you haven't read it, some of the early stuff he did, like Rubber Blanket, are just stunning and crazy. He's 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 done a lot of different stuff. And I don't know, have you guys read City of Glass? I actually just read it recently
0: uh and was not <laughs> wasn't ready for it. It wasn't what I thought it was gonna be. And I was pretty I would, yeah, it, it was kind of like a fever dream. <laughs> so I would characterize yeah, a little bit. coming out of it. <laughs> yeah, very some of, immersive. Some of the, yeah, the the metatextual elements of it. Yeah, I think if I had read the the novel first, I would have said it was unadaptable. So uh, it was yeah it was quite an experience
2: well there's there's actually a, a youtube video where everyone involved in city of glass including Spiegelman and you know Masakelli and catcher mm-hmm. they all not catcher excuse me uh, Kara, karasik uh they all sit down and talk about all the decisions they made and it's incredible how much work went into the creation of it and how much the structure of the book was used rhetorically mm-hmm. um and i used it when i was teaching this this um these week-long workshops in minneapolis years ago uh, i had it as a book club selection where where the kids read it and we all just talked about it we had a roundtable discussion about it and, oh my god the things they found in that book it was incredible but yeah Mazzucchelli, Kelly i think is is really ripe for that because because he's always thinking about how comics work and but he also has chops you know like things like batman year one are just like good solid comics uh you know he he's kind of got it all and he didn't do too many pages altogether. So, (laughs) so he, he won't exhaust you quite, quite as much. Um, Vaughn, Vaughn's done at least two or three times as many. Oh, we're, we're going
0: to be on Vaughn until, uh, (laughs) until next spring. Probably. I think I broke it down this afternoon. (laughs) Have you, have you heard from him yet? Oh, we have, I haven't. Yeah. I don't think we've contacted him. I, I I've been reading a lot of interviews with him, Mm-hmm. And, and most of them start off with something to the effect of it's so great to finally be talking to you and him being like, yeah, I hate interviews. <laughs> 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 so
2: <laughs> I'm not really expecting to, uh, to, to hear from him, but who knows, you know, you should never say some, never. You should put, some deliberate misinformation into your review, just like some <laughs> little, Oh, I read somewhere that he's from Hungary, you know, and, and, then, and I then dare him just... to set me straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just have to come on the show. then. What oh, other thing I meant to ask about, I don't know
1: why this came up, but when you were talking about the, uh, the Bitcoin comic, I was curious as to how exactly the, uh, the Google Chrome comic came about, because I remember reading that at the time. Oh, yeah.
2: And I, I I'm curious as to what the genesis of that was. Yeah, this is 2008. The browser was not out. Actually, most people at Google didn't even know it existed. It was just a small team of engineers and a few people at Google. And they got me up and asked me if I wanted to do a comic, you know, promoting this new secret project that they had. And and I was, I was very intrigued. And we talked about it. I found out it was a browser. And I actually suggested the approach, which was, that as I as I understood it at the time, because I talked to a bunch of engineers, this is a very engineer-driven company, and even though they might be borderline evil in in many people's opinion these days, they were they were a pretty cool bunch of people. I, I was very fond of Google. I still am. I'm still fond of a lot of the people up there. They had a um, "Don't be evil" uh, uh, mission yeah. statement at that. Oh, point. Oh yeah, no, not, they not literally, sure. yeah, <laughs> they literally had yes, "Don't be evil." And actually, evil mostly just meant don't be Microsoft, but that's another <laughs> thing. It, it evolved over time to be a more sweeping statement. Um, so uh, it seemed to me that in introducing the browser, what was likely to happen is everybody would just look at it as a corporate maneuver. But I had talked to the engineers by then, as we were, you know, I had a day or two of just talking to engineers, and I said, no, 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 this really is about the engineering. It's it's really a it's just a bunch of a bunch of guys who want to make the the web run more efficiently because the web was where they lived you know they were living in this fish tank you know google lived online and they were looking at all this cruft all this awful stuff online and the browser was the reason for it so they want they really did want to make a better browser <laughs> and and so and, and in fact i i like chrome i still use it today but um so what i suggested was that i just talk to engineers endlessly and learn everything I possibly could. And then then I would be able to um, make the comic. But then retroactively, we would go back, find words that they had said to illuminate the, the sequences that I had created as, as explanations. And then they would come in as a narrator. It was sort of back-ass words thing where we would find things that they were telling me that served as explanation of what I had already figured out as a way to explain it. It was very weird. But the idea was that the engineers would be the hosts of the comic. They would be they would be the Scott McCloud with the splain in hand, as as uh, as Joe Matt calls it. You know, where you have the handout, so it it's a thing. It doesn't matter. But um, <laughs> so the engineers would host the comic, and it was the engineers who had to approve the thing, and that the team was headed up by Sundar Pichai, who's now uh, their CEO. I think C. COO, CEO, whatever. He run, kind of runs the ship now. But at the time, he was just running up this team. And they were the ones, they were really my editors. They were the ones that I had to get approval from. And they, they were a little skeptical. But as, as we worked on it, and over like four or five months, I just got like 40 hours of just them talking, just engineers talking and teaching me. To understand the engineering decisions and then at that point once i understood it i could turn around and do the comic very easily and then the hard part was combing through all those transcripts to find the you know the actual dialogue but the explaining thing this is the algernon principle like for flowers for algernon where the the guy who becomes very smart from this chemical treatment and then loses all of his intelligence and he writes a diary about it there was a mouse called algernon who is the lab mouse that they that they start out making smart I believe that to do a really good nonfiction comic about something that you aren't already an expert in you need to be make made as made smart enough by the experts by your subject matter experts to be temporarily smart enough to explain it and then you can forget it all you just you need to be temporarily smart and that's what we did we made scott as smart as an engineer <laughs> on the surface so that i could lucidly explain this stuff And then, of course, I went back to being a dumbass. But but it's okay because the comic was done. And you didn't even have to die for the ending. And I didn't have to die for the (laughs) ending. Yeah, not not even a little. And yeah, the comic the comic did well. It's in like hundreds of languages because it's Google. Um, Some of them were crowdsourced. And for a while, at several of Google's buildings, you'd come into the reception desk, and they put the entire comic on the wall, like all the pages in a big like mural. I think people. I don't know. A lot of people there felt that it it kind of it felt very googly in the end to do something goofy like that. Um, felt very googly, and and in the end, the engineers really did like it. They liked it. Some of them even saw their work in a different light because, like like I always say, it's like you can live in a house all your life, but it still looks different when you go up on the roof for the first time. You know, and that's 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 what comics can do. It by visualizing something. You can illuminate structures that even if you've been inside of them for years, it gives you a new perspective on them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we will we will dally no further. I'm- All right. Shall I? Shall I get to my? Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Lay my it on
2: us. <laughs> All right. You mentioned the origins of the closure term. Uh, not definitely not mine. Uh, closure originated with the Gestalt psychologists. Also true of gutters. I, I popularized the term, but uh, that that was pre-existing. I actually didn't understand fully. I had sort of gotten the idea of closure from my college years for just professors talking about it. And I was just like, eh, it's some art school thing. But you know, it never even occurred to me that there was probably somebody who originated the, <laughs> the notion of closure. So eventually I was like, oh, damn should find out about that guy. For a while, I spent years thinking that I had actually accidentally coined a new meaning because somebody from you know the literary theory ends of things had told me, oh, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means this. I thought, oh, no, I guess I kind of made up a meaning. It's like, no, no, no. The original <laughs> meaning was correct. It's just it came from you know like 70 years ago or whatever. Let's see. Viewer participation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole Oh man, all the digital comic stuff. I think I kind of mentioned this, but we got to remember that the web launched 6 months after Understanding Comics came out, but there had already been these comics attempts to make comics in CD-ROMs. And so my initial frame of reference was CD-ROMs, and I was like, you know, in those days it it like took it took 10 minutes to draw a picture the size of a postage stamp on the web. <laughs> so like not a lot of people were doing pictures on the web. But my attitude was like, yeah, they will give it time because I I was a firm believer in Moore's law, although it did eventually kind of crash to the ground, thank God, because otherwise we'd all be serving our robot overlords. But that's another thing. Anyway, (laughs) to tell me more. (laughs) Never mind. Never mind. Forget it. Forget I said anything. I'll have to erase your memories later. But (laughs) but what was I trying? What the hell? was I getting at? Um, Your oh, yeah. So CD-ROMs were, yeah, for, for a while, you know, you could do a lot more with CD-ROMs because the data was it was all there on the disk. And you didn't have to download like, you know, 100 megs, uh, which is really, really hard in 93. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now you're seeing a lot of that same stuff now on the web because we're in a more high bandwidth environment, at least, you know, compared to that. Uh, oh, I liked, I forgot what. I don't know which of you said it, but I really like this quote. A survivor can't help but create art, and an artist can't help but want to survive. I like that. We said that? One yeah. of us is <laughs> a genius. <laughs>
0: <laughs> said that.
2: Sounds, uh, sounds good. It's good. It's a good quote. I actually I actually was. I, I was definitely very tongue in cheek when I was doing like, oh, well, the true artist doesn't care for fame or fortune or whatever. I mean, like that is why I put him in a beret with the mustache <laughs> and the striped shirt. Clearly, clearly, I don't, I don't see that as like, you know, like a thing that's like this ethos that I'm, I'm, de- I'm deeply dedicated to. It's like, no, no, I believe in, I believe in art in all faces of human activity. Really, I believe very strongly in black and white and the advantages of black and white. That's from my manga days. So in a lot of ways, I really seized on the opportunity to to ditch the color, even though even though it was practical circumstances that made it necessary. I was like, I was fine with that. I, man, I love black and white comics. About Zot, this says, just, just for uh, for the listener. Yes, yes. It, this is in reference to Zot, which started in color and, and for 12 issues and then went to black and white. But yeah, I, the thing is that a lot of black and white comics during what we called the black and white boom, which sort of happened between the first incarnation of Zod and the second one, because I have a a tremendous talent for missing whatever the fad is completely (laughs) and never benefiting from it. But um, a lot of that boom was really color comics without the color. And and that bugged me. I didn't like that. I didn't like repurposed things. If you're going to make it black and white, it should be created for black and white. And that's actually a motif all the way through my whole career. Like if you're going to make something digital, it should be created for digital. If you're going to make something in print, it should be created for print. You know, I don't, I don't like repurposing. Never did directory. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Sought online art. Oh yeah. Sure. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, the... this is, uh,
0: we, we thought that it looked oh. quite pixely. The line is, yeah, what it did. Recall. Well, yeah. that was,
2: that was drawn. I didn't have my Cintiq yet. And that was all drawn mm. on, um, uh, on that tiny little Wacom tablet that I had. And, and it was very rough, but also you were looking at it probably at a, you know, full size or whatever. Yeah. The thing was on very low resolution, resolution screens. But right. the the thing with the the Zod Online story is a lot of it was the first test drive for some of the the ideas about the canvas. And and I will say that the one thing that that I was kind of proud of is that a lot of people freaked out at the third, I think it was the third episode or whatever, third, second, whatever chapter of this this online comic. When I had the falling panel, I had this one panel where Zot is falling and gets like shot out of the sky and Jenny, oh, that's it. I, they're, they're flying in the flying car. The flying car blows up and Zot and Jenny are falling and Zot is unconscious and Jenny has to wake him up. And it's just, you're scrolling down and you're still scrolling and you're still scrolling and you're still scrolling and you're falling and falling and falling and falling. And that was actually that in the the little tiny web comics community, that was a lot of people's Aha moment, and this so like to the extent that I had this little tribe of people who were following me, you know, like into battle at Waterloo, and mostly being <laughs> murdered. Um, a lot of them first gathered around in 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 the battalions after seeing that. That was the moment where they're like, "Oh my God, you can do something different." So so at least it had that. But yeah, but the art it's going to look shitty. But it also, it's <laughs> like the only way to does really display that the kind of resolution people had in those days. Is to see it pretty small, but also no cintiq. I really needed the cintiq. I desperately needed the cintiq, and I regret not buying the the first ones that came out in '99. I wish I had the sound motion thing. I mostly thought of like sound and motion as an exit ramp. You know, i uh, there are ways to use them in an ambient way, but if you. If it just becomes a little movie like the Watchmen motion comics, like fuck that shit. (laughs) I was wondering if you had ever seen
0: that. Well, I'm sure just given your interest that you had,
2: but uh, yeah. yeah, It's just, it's a wannabe movie. It's a wannabe movie. All of the artifacts (laughs) of comics are just really just getting in the way, I think. Um, And then, yeah. Yeah. Covered that. Oh, I was 18 since you asked when uh, when I first uh, had sex, late. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you asked. Not gonna leave that a mystery. Yeah. Hey, you gotta give the people what they want and sex sells. Yeah. So you I heard was a it nerd. here first. I, I was a nerd. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so a little late, but not you know not not definitely not as late as my protagonist in the sculptor. Well, the thing actually. You see again there's there's a place where I really should have leaned into the hilarity of it. It's like he doesn't give a lot of details, but I had a whole backstory, and I thought, ah, I don't need to spell this out <laughs> after after people read it, it was like, "Oh yes, Scott, you <laughs> had to spell that out that is definitely not working. No, what I imagined it was like he he had had a few girlfriends, but he was kind of a serial monogamist, you know like or whatever but but he was he he was him, right? So he was like super super serious and very romantic and like oh it's got to be the one or whatever. But also I imagined his like previous girlfriend that it was kind of like not the best relationship, but also that she was like into like I had heard a story of like a, an acquaintance of ours whose partner was into tantric sex, and it's like it was sort of like everything except. That one thing, and that was the, so. I I imagined my my protagonist said that he had experienced that everything except you know thing where he just he hadn't done the one thing right. He'd done it. He'd done all the other stuff. He'd had sexual relationships, but he hadn't done that one thing, and so that sort of weighed on him. And that's what it. That's what that whole exchange was about. But it did. It boy did that not work. And, <laughs> a, and a lot of people reasonably came to the same conclusion that you did. It was like that. He's, <laughs> Twenty? What was he? Twenty six? Twenty? I can't remember how old he was exactly, but um, but that he hadn't had you know really any significant experiences at all. This no, no, he's missing the one thing, but that was because of this weird relationship that he had had. Mm-hmm. You I'm know, scared. some long term relationship where like, so no, we're not doing that one thing because I don't I I don't know that much about tantric sex. I may maybe com- <laughs> completely butchering it, but. But I think part of it is like you know withholding the you know like not, not finishing so that you can prolong the whatever the hell it is I don't know.
0: When we have Sting on the
2: show, we'll ask him about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Everybody's everybody's going back to his his memorable appearance in Dune. Mm. You know, don't think about <laughs> that way these days.
1: <laughs> looking uh,
2: forward to. I'm looking forward to that. that we, were,
1: we were just talking about possibly seeing it this weekend not to date us like, once again
2: but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you know when the original one came out they, they actually some fans i don't know if this is true in all the showings but the premiere that i went to fans came in and handed out an informational packet
0: <laughs> <telling you> important <laughs> important things that you would need to enjoy
2: <laughs> david uh, David Lynch's masterpiece it with like David David Lynch info packets or like no, Frank no. Herbert dude Frank info Her- packets no, this is like, <laughs> like the Frank Herbert Appreciation Society <laughs> of Boston or whatever it right
0: was. it's important that you call the spice melange when you're discussing it
2: fear is the mind killer <laughs> that's just a it's certainly an investment yeah <laughs> I I literally answered every every question that and some probably nobody really wanted to know, but <laughs> that, that last one I I find
1: personally fulfilling. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you guys in a way that it. David Smith perhaps had not previously been able to <laughs> Fulfillment was not his destiny. No. no. Well, you have certainly, uh, as as that I think group of notes indicates, shown us far more <laughs> attention and appreciation than we ever uh, we ever expected or deserved. So, thank you, thank you for that very much. Um, well,
2: thank you for your twenty plus hours of of diligent, excruciating service and and covering. Uh, nearly everything I did because thank God I didn't have that long a career. Or, no, excuse me. I didn't have that uh, productive a career. It's been very long, actually. But yeah, no, thanks. It was helpful. You know, and I think, like I said, I think at the beginning, I, I think that one's self-awareness is it's a lifelong struggle to accurately, you know, see what you've been able to do and where where your limitations are. And that's that's something because I'm the kind of artist I am. That's something I do think about. I do try to work on. And uh, it, it's it's helpful to me to to get that perspective. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it's a two way street in that regard. Um, perhaps perhaps this episode will serve as a a signifier to us that we are at least at least doing something of value to specifically the people that wrote in <laughs> yes. the comments.
2: You will you will always have an audience of one, even if even if we don't admit it. So, some artists may not admit it, but you'll always have that audience of ones.
1: And Brian, hello.
2: We'll be speaking with you shortly. <laughs> We're coming for you, Brian.
1: <laughs> but uh, again, thank you, Scott. Um, it was it was a great pleasure. This will probably go up, uh, go up next week as an episode, a, a, a very special episode of Got the Runs. <laughs> Uh, so Austin. for all those listening, uh, keep listening to our Brian K. Vaughn series, go back and revisit the Scott episodes because you will now have renewed insight and all of your questions will be answered. Uh, and until then, Scott, would you like to join us with our, our oh, classic like,
2: that, Zoom catch? This,
0: this is uh, something that has only just started to be in the episodes that are being <laughs> released. So I don't think Scott is even aware of this.
2: Well, no, I, I, ter- I haven't heard the latest uh, Vaughn episode, but I heard the first first half of the Swamp Things. And I know you did something at the end, but I forgot what it was.
1: Well, our our new ongoing, we, we've sort of been trying to figure out some sort of recurring segments or structure, uh, as one might expect from a podcast they listen to. But our new go-to is at the end of the episode, we will say in unison, to be continued. But because it is always over Zoom, it is always very strange and delayed.
2: But
0: we, we enjoy it.
2: Oh, right. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like when we tried to do... Uh christmas caroling over zoom oh my god
1: <laughs> i believe last Year's i had a rendition of auld lang syne over zoom that was
2: uh fascinating <laughs> all right well let's try it and now of course if we were recording separately you could always fix it in post but no <laughs> no, no siree <laughs> no, 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 no you're doomed to whatever comes out let's give it a try we're doing it Absolutely. live and so
1: to all the listeners and to scott until next time To to be be be
2: continued, Continued. (laughs) (laughs)
0: flawless as always.